0: Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin.
1: Hi, I'm Mark Kate. Welcome to episode 42 of Why We Listen. In this podcast, I meet with my guests to listen to and talk about music. I ask them to choose three pieces of music in advance, using whatever criteria they'd like, and we listen to those songs and we talk. In this episode, I meet with John Leideker, aka Wobbly. John is an electronic musician based in San Francisco, and we listen to an excerpt from Living Sound, patent pending by Marianne Amache, Emu by Marissa Marchand, and an excerpt from Electric Symphony Part One by Roland Kane. And we talk about his history with the band Negative Land, cybernetic music, and psychoacoustic phenomena. Right now, we're listening to Cumulonimbus by Els Marie Pade. In particular, we're listening to Els Marie Pade because John and I talk about her for a little bit in our conversation, but uh, it wasn't one of the songs he actually selected to play and I wanted to give you all who aren't familiar with her music a little extra context. Also. For a little while, we discussed the software Ableton Live, sort of in a context where we both clearly know all about it, but also assumed the listeners did. But for those of you who don't make computer-based music, Ableton Live is a piece of software, a digital audio workstation that is performance-oriented. It lends itself to creating music with a laptop on the fly. It's both very versatile and very much guides the user towards a certain way of constructing music, towards a certain process. Please subscribe to Why We Listen on iTunes or Stitcher because the release schedule, well, there is no schedule. I just do Why We Listen when I can, uh, when I get a good guest, when I have free time. And so if you subscribe, you'll know about it a lot easier. Something that I find interesting about making work, about making art at this point in history, is that though I was trained to be an artist with a certain kind of pedagogy, if you use a technique or a craft, it requires manuals, time crafting a skill, etc. But if you're creating something without a template, you're quite on your own. With the advent of YouTube, every skill is a search away, right? Every creative possibility is explained in detail by somebody somewhere in multiple languages. However, this implies a template. I think this is very much tied to how immersed we are in retro. At the moment, uh, which I talk about on almost every episode of Why We Listen, arcane knowledge is out on display, right? So like the gain structure for a gaze guitar tone or Raku firing techniques or complicated motion graphics. Um, What can easily happen is when you have a near infinity of examples to draw from, you're easily sucked into testing them. And it seduces you away from making your own choices. So when I said every creative possibility is explained, I was fibbing. The truth is that because there are so many explanations and so many tips and tricks out there, it can easily feel like your voice is already bested by someone else. If you have an idea and dig around, on how to manifest it, it's easy to discover that several people have already been in that territory and been doing it for a while and possibly mastered it. So you might as well just copy them, right? Since they've done the work, it'll save you time. But this is a distraction from doing that very work yourself. When you're learning, even from a script, you're always making discoveries. That's what learning is. However, Those discoveries are different from the discoveries you make when you are writing the script yourself, from scratch. So what do we do? Not ever read the manual? Avoid useful information? Disregard the advice of forum posters and YouTube how-tos? How many mistakes and frustrations are worth the uphill climb of doing things the ignorant way? But making mistakes, making genuine discoveries, Experimentation is, to me, where art gets interesting. That process is essential. So where,
2: I don't actually know, where did you go to school? High school was Oakland, and then college was University of California, Santa Barbara. What did you study at Santa Barbara? It was just literature. It was totally postponing the real world. I had no, nothing but fear for the very idea of having a career because I knew that the only thing I was really going to be good at doing was music. So most of what I did at at, uh, UCSB actually was a radio show on KCSB, a live mix radio show, uh, electroacoustic music slash talk show
1: parody. Did you know Ramona? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, when uh, when did you sort of go from I'm going to school for English? When did you suddenly have confidence in your ability to choose your own path? I'm still working on the confidence for uh, music, well.
2: but it really did. In a way, the KCSB music career led to a career in audio engineering. That was certainly it. Was the uh, experience at KCSB that actually was far more important to my resume when I started applying to companies like Orban and Digidesign, and so the um, hardware software test engineering career built out of my true interests, uh, regardless. But then there was a weird side effect in that my ability as a tester to write in complete sentences served me in good stead dealing with uh, developers and uh, coders. So
1: you were a musician who went to school for something else who actually uses their degree that's not in music. Well, being able to write
2: cogent, succinct, short emails in um, translatable English actually ended up being a pretty good job asset as a test engineer.
1: It's a miracle.
2: Just trust in yourself. Uh, And um, the things that you care about doing are the things that other people are probably going to have uh, the confidence to hire you for in the long run.
1: Right. And did you, do you have a graduate degree? No. You didn't go to Mills? No, no. You're you're just part of the extended family of Mills College? I um, audited a class. The first year Fred Frith
2: went there, I um, audited his, uh, his class and performed in contemporary performance ensemble. And so met a bunch of people there. And then just started getting invited back to substitute teach there a lot. Um, usually about once a year at this this point, I sub Zena Parkin's class on uh, composition improvisation on the subject of sampling and uh, appropriation in music. What's that so. class like to teach? Different from year to year. It depends on the students. But uh, Zena is connected to everybody, so she has yeah. a lot of amazing guests in. So you really get the sense by the time I usually am visiting their their eyes are pretty wide open. It's, I think she teaches a pretty amazing class. That's cool.
1: You have all this solo music and at some point you joined up with Negative Land and how did that, how did that come about? How did, how did becoming a member of this legendary? Well, I first heard
2: Negative Land's radio show in 1985 uh, when I was 15 years old in Walnut, living in Walnut Creek. Uh, and it was definitely one of those, um, life changing, your life changed in under 30 seconds kind of moments because I'd never heard anything like that radio show before, but at the same time I instantly knew what it was. Um, it was, uh, it was a live mix, uh, collage program called Over the Edge in which, Four to ten to fifteen things are always playing at once, but in kind of a compositional, (laughs) conversational way. Like records, instead of playing all the way through, are turned on and off. And it's amazing how when you take two pop songs and just cut them in with each other, they always, more often than not, seem to be in conversation with each other. Uh, And then they would play instruments on top or just uh, talk on top of them or take phone calls. And the phone calls, instead of calling in and pretending to be talk radio, would often call in with musical instruments and play along with the records that were on the turntables. Great. So it was basically what we now see as the internet, the interactive internet, but on the radio in 1985. And so I started calling in every week. And by 1987, I had gone to their concerts and started playing on the radio show. So... I met them, and um, I've known them for about oh, thirty years. So it was—it uh, wasn't ever formally a um, a disciple situation, but uh, they always basically treated me like a um, you know a fellow collaborator. And at some point uh, in the early two thousands, there was a spinoff group from Negative Land called Chopping Channel with um, yeah. three or four of the members and me, and. Um, a lot of those pieces actually ended up on negative land records, and so it just sort of naturally turned a page. in, in about 2011, for me to actually join the group, which I couldn't have imagined when I was 15. But um, usually, the moment at which the dream finally becomes reality is when it's so mundane and so uh, <laughs> like you know, you know the people so well, and there's such family that it's 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 not a dream anymore. It's it's just
1: kind of obvious, right? And so, given that you had been listening to Negative Land for so for starting at such an early point in your life i'd assume they had a great influence on what was to become your voice how do you feel it would would that be true
2: oh yeah definitely uh horrifying i spent most of my early 20s trying not to sound like them because they'd had such an impact. Uh, and there was no way for me not to sound like them. I was influenced by all the sample media collagists. I was influenced by John Oswald and Carl Stone and the tape Beatles like this and public enemy and basically 99% of anything played on KSOL and, and, uh, uh, hip hop scratch records, like anything that was obviously made out of several other things. Yeah. You know, negative land was one of the far field examples of it, but, uh, the, the gap was always being closed. You know, De La Soul's first record is that was pop music. Like right. for a while, it's hard to believe that that was actually mainstream. Uh, it wasn't exactly normal, but uh, it was astonishing that the monoculture were giving us gifts like the first De La Soul record. Like oh, yeah. it was, we took it for granted. Yeah. Uh, I didn't take it for granted. You know, I think there were a lot of people listening to both Bernanino and Negative Land and De La Soul and Public Enemy and just realizing that it was all a continuum.
1: Yeah. Would you characterize that moment of trying to find your own voice in the, I, I wouldn't necessarily say shadow, but maybe it was the shadow of negative land. What is that like? What Can you characterize what that sort of finding one's own voice through being inspired by someone who kind of got to a certain territory a moment before you did?
2: Um, what I would say
1: is... That's always just an interesting question for oh, me. Oh, it is. You know?
2: No, I mean, what I... Um... I, I My tastes touched on a number of other things. Well, let me put it this way. I definitely, over time, seem to gravitate towards my heroes and then actually meeting them and trying to work with them, like collaborating with John Oswald, collaborating with Dieter Mobius, collaborating with um And I, I don't know why I'm drawn to it other than that. Yeah, I don't know why I'm drawn to it. <laughs> It seems to be the the way to uh, tackle the issue of influence head on, basically, is yeah. to meet them as people. I never got to meet David Tudor. I got into his music a little bit um, too late to actually dare to try to uh, confront that influence head on. Yeah. But, you know, I, I guess I just try to be as influenced by as many things as possible and find my own voice in and out of in and out of all of those uh, influences. Certainly in the case, I I don't think that my my own music in the 90s and 2000s actually sounded that much like Negative Land directly, but working with the band and getting to actually call it Canon Negative Land has actually been pretty satisfying because I can go back to all the things that I consciously tried to avoid doing in my
1: early 20s and now I get to do them and actually call it the group. (laughs) Flagrantly. Yeah. That's great. So... You were very interested in sampling, but I also... I tend to think of you very much in the synth world as well. You you definitely know an awful lot about synthesis and its history. And were these interests simultaneous between sampling and synthesis? Or did you pick up synthesis later?
2: I think it's more just sort of me being driven to figure out what the world of music or what music is as a social tribal form of communication in the age of electronics, Um, all the things that only electronic music can do, what electronic music is intrinsically good at doing and presenting to people to help them live together. And in hindsight, I don't think I could have really described or explained this terribly uh, coherently at 15 or 25, but... um, there are several things that only electronic music were, were, uh, that were intrinsic to electronic music. And one of them is the ability to record music and to have the composition, what we now know of as a fixed composition actually be the music itself, something yeah. that you can play back over and over and over again. And that leads to media collage and people who actually play live using pre-recordings. And Negative Land are among the artists that uh, do this the most formally so that everyone can have the light bulb moment and realize, oh, this is what live electronic music is now. Or what live music is, it's recombining and playing, playback is performance. So I was drawn towards that. But I also loved, I was really big on Cluster growing up um, mm. for the way that they would just sort of effortlessly play those sounds I guess one of the things that's really... Cluster were... uh, When they moved from... Maybe explain Cluster just at least briefly.
1: A little context.
2: Yeah. How to describe Cluster. They, in... Every single one of their records sounds really radically different. They started off as essentially a in what, avant-garde 68? in the early 70s, they, uh, late 60s, early 70s. They started playing what we would now call industrial drone music and basically helped invent it, like, you know, totally savagely dissonant, anti-musical, um, long extended six hour performances of just, you know... Unearthly drone. And then they packed it up and moved to the countryside into an abandoned um, state sanctioned schoolhouse and were suddenly surrounded by birds and nature. And all of a sudden, their music just took on this bizarre Schubert classical music accompanied by electronic bird song, pastoral bliss. Like you just, their records became unbelievably beautiful. And they were very obscure in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Even though they did collaborate with Brian Eno, but as the years have gone by, more and more people are basically realizing that all those um, that their their records have become canon. In the '80s, it was hard to find their records because you had to like fish through the glut of Tangerine Dream records and Klaus Schultz records that were just you know one to two dollars a piece, and every once in a while you'd find a Rodelius or a Mobius solo record, and you'd yeah. you'd zone in on it. Well, I
1: feel like after Julian Cope's Kraut Rock Sampler book. Cluster came a little more on the map and then towards the end of the 90s there were a few reissues and that brought them more on the map and maybe even now there's like uh, Cluster keeps getting a little more and a little more recognized and maybe now with uh, the last number of years the resurgence of interest in new age is maybe pushing just a little more Mm -hmm. of them to the fore at least their albums that you were sort of just describing a moment ago yeah, the prettier
2: ones Those records are holding up really well, Mm -hmm. a lot better than a lot of, as more and more people hop on and start making this kind of music themselves, um, many of the other people who were making electronic music in the 70s, that music is pretty easily duplicated, as we all get um, mock-ups and soft synth versions of these synthesizers, and people start doing it themselves. It's pretty easy to sound like Tangerine Dream or Klaus Schulze. but it's actually pretty hard to sound like cluster. So those records
1: are just, you know, still holding up as
2: teaching moments.
1: Yeah. I wanna go back to something you were saying about um, electronic music and what's possible. Um, Something I tend to harp about is the way in which I feel like music is stopped and we sort of look to electronic music to push forward that we probably haven't heard a new sound since autotune, like, uh, like the human experience has not come across something that it has never heard before, at least since then. And that wasn't even that good. And I'm just sort of curious if you see a way for Well, if you agree with me, and if you see a way forward, if you see that there are some sort of burgeoning possibilities within electronic music that are what is potentially next, because I feel like we've been so immersed in Retromania and rehashing, you know, even what you just said, there are all these people like reinvestigating New Age, which is awesome, but it's spending time with plugins replicating 30, 50-year-old synthesizers, right? Well, um, I think we're drowning in recordings,
2: which is leading to self-conscious hallmark ways of thinking such as Retromania. But I, I still hear... New sounds and new combinations of sounds that I've never heard before. And I think I'm listening as, as hard as I can to the development of electronic music. I don't know. Autoacoustic emissions, and, um, you know, like for instance, you're mentioning soft synth versions of 80s uh, synthesizers. Uh, now that FM synthesis and DX7 emulations are showing up on iPhones with touch screens, I'm hearing them actually played and manipulated in ways that I never heard a DX7 sound. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing things that actually do sound quite, quite new. Mark Fell is a great example of someone who's using the exact same algorithms that were used contained in the original DX7. Yeah. Does it sound like a DX7? It sounds completely... It's, it's retro-reminiscent at points, but uh, I don't know. I think the new has more to do with how you listen um, than... Um, whether or not it's truly new. And you have to always question yourself as to whether you're simply getting old when you think that you're not hearing any new sounds.
1: I think it's a science fact.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Don and I used to have this argument all the time. Don Joyce of Negative Land said, there are new note, new sounds. The only valid form of aesthetic expression anymore is collage and putting the previously invented sounds together into new, into new shapes because... There is no way to synthesize an unheard of sound at this point. Uh, I agree with his premise. I disagree with his conclusion. No. Though it's a great line to take. Oh yeah, he was he was pretty uh, art school hardline about it. Um, <laughs> but you know, he also sounded pretty old saying stuff like that. And every <laughs> once in a while, you know, I would try to play him new stuff that I, you know, was pretty sure. You know, I'd play him Marianne Amishain. It's like, did you ever hear that did your ears do that? You know, the the ears on the inside of your head, have you ever heard that? And you would just go, oh, it sounds like uh, noise music, John Cage, 1962. And i was like, no, yeah,
1: no. <laughs> well, speaking of playing people music. Well, I brought a Marianne Amoshe track. Uh, oh, super. Um, is that what we're going to listen to first? or We might as well. Although okay, s- um, this is, uh, you know,
2: caveats. Uh, Marianne Amoshe is completely unrecordable. So a recording cannot hope.
1: Well, tell you what, why don't we listen to it, and then you can explain how that is the case. Sounds good. All right.
2: I know not everybody in the world could listen to that forever, but, um, yeah, I, uh, there's, there's no, um, Marianne Hamacher is probably uh, objectively one of the, the, (laughs) how do I sum this up? if I were forced to come up with a list of like most important electronic music composers, Marianne Amoshe would probably be on the top five list. Um, in the seventies, she uh, discovered while playing with highly amplified sine waves in the three to five K range that you could resonate your eardrum, the, uh, the inner ear that was attached to your skull in a way that would create a sympathetic harmonic note, your skull would basically be resonating. It would set your skull resonating with a uh, a sympathetic pitch resulting in a harmonic note that you could only hear inside your own head. And this note would change as you swallowed or as you walked around the physical space that was uh, playing the note. So that was a room recording from her playing in uh, the music gallery in Toronto in 1982 And you can hear about 30 seconds into the tape, some people in the background start to laugh, almost sort of uh, disorientedly and euphorically. And uh, I saw her three times myself in the early 2000s, and that's exactly what happens. When you hear this note on the inside of your head you can tell that it's actually not coming from outside space, that it is a completely subjective note, not an objective note that everyone else in the room is hearing. You realize that it is an internal note, that it's the sound of your skull vibrating. And yet it's so loud that it's a loud note that only you can hear. And the only rational response is laughter. Like you've never heard anything like it before. And it's so beautiful. And at first, a panic almost sets in because in a way it sounds like intense distortion. It sounds like your ears are clipping. Mm. But at one point somebody walked up right next to me and just said, it's not that loud at all. At which point I realized that it actually wasn't dangerous. It was actually a quiet noise that just happened to be setting my ears into this weird sympathetic motion. And that's when the euphoria really kicked in because it was one of the purest forms of music I'd ever heard. And uh, it wasn't a seated show, so you could walk around. And then the euphoria really kicks in because you realize that you're collaborating with the sound. Like, you can totally change the sound of the harmonies simply by swallowing or walking around the space. That sounds slightly invasive. Um... It's pretty
1: intimate. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not mad or anything.
2: It's pretty intimate. It's pretty horrifying. And some people, like, it's too much for them. And sure. they run out of the room. They yeah. run and they do not come back in. They. <laughs> um, it's not for everybody. But for the people who, people began hugging each other. It was as if, like, everyone had done a psychoactive drug, uh, you know, and came on within the first 60 seconds. Um, you know, people were, it's, it's it's invasive for some people and other people basically are just intimate. Oh, it's what's really striking about it is that it's a psychoacoustic fact. Like it's music that explores an aspect of physical reality that no one else had gotten to and made music out of it. And it was totally undeniable. Everybody's left like wandering around the space, trying to figure out what's happening to them. And uh, we didn't get to this point in the recording, but, um, uh, usually at the five to 10 minute mark, she plays starts playing these slow moving Wagnerian, incredibly beautiful romantic chords that just like shift and underpin everything. And then she just l- kind of lets it play out for the next forty minutes until you've lost track of all time.
1: So those chords are outside of the psychoacoustic phenomenon. The chords are They're surrounding. Yes, yeah. they
2: are more in the normal, the normal acoustic range of what we consider to be music. But she, um, yeah, she would definitely use them, and it would almost be uh, sentimental if it weren't for the fact <laughs> that the inside of your skull were still resonating.
1: And can this be reproduced? Like, you and I listened to this on headphones, but I almost feel like the recording we listened to was like a gallery shot of an installed You can't record it. Show. You can't
2: record it. Like, when the loud part clicks in that we just listened to, you could hear the cassette deck's limiter squash on and change the mix entirely. Yes. So um, she did release two CDs worth of her work on the Zadik label, But they don't even remotely resemble what she would do in concert, where she would take you through a 40 to 90 minute sort of symphonic form with all of the different elements, like coming in one at a time. The CD is, I don't even know why she put out those CDs, because she was begged by John Zorn to like document her work. Mm. And so what she did was she actually just put together several CDs with some of the sound elements that she actually mixed with in concert. but. She doesn't give you her compositional form or anything like the CDs are really, you know, she was uh, pretty adamant about not documenting what she did because she never wanted anyone to come to the mistaken conclusion that they'd experienced her work. Your work can only my work can only be experienced when uh, I've been in the room for a week preparing and uh, doing sound isolation and living in the space to make sure that I really know what the room is capable of. And then I'm there to perform and mix and control the elements in the room while, you're, while I am there with the audience.
1: That sounds slightly like uh, like Lamont Young, Marian Zazila, strategy. I, well, I, it's not a strategy, excuse me, a, a way of working Yes, process. Yes,
2: it was It was somewhat like that. Somewhat like that. But it leaves us in an a, a unfortunate position to carry on the work because um, there's barely anyone who ever did what she did. Uh, but she left it at, at a disadvantage to uh, carry on the work, although the Marianne Amache Archive is doing a pretty good job at uh, uh, putting together all of these elements. And Not Human did manage to make a 12-channel recording of her performance at the compound in mm. 2000. But playing back those 12 channels is an acoustic challenge in and of itself. Uh, they did the first public playback of it at Gray Area late last year, and reviews were mixed, <laughs> uh, some people had their lives changed. Some people were, wow, that wasn't loud enough. <laughs> right. And the acoustics at Gray Area are st- were still, uh, they've gotten a lot better at preparing them. But all of these things are not, uh, they can't be left to accident. Uh, yeah, they're not trivial concerns the way they are for
1: almost all other music. I would
2: no, think. no. We've really made the mistake sometimes of thinking that the recording is the piece at this point, And it's never the case. The piece is. The playback of the piece, the equipment it's playing back on, and the room that you're playing it back on, within, and uh, the people that you're with at the moment that you're all hearing it—like these things are not. You're accents. describing a rave. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was a lot of yeah yeah. It felt uh, man, if they played more Marianne Amache at raves, <laughs> I would have gone to them for an extra ten years. <laughs>
1: Okay, what else shall we listen to? Do you want to describe before we listen, or shall we just um, play? There, let's play
2: a piece of music that was posted to the internet by singer-songwriter Marissa Marchant in the early 2000s. This is a song called Emu.
0: i <laughs> the
1: make of that
2: oh that guitar trill at the end is my favorite well, what, what what would uh what would you say about it what is your first reaction to a track like that
1: well it's funny because you've got this packaging that you've made from the cd from her website oh wow um, yeah and I, I sort of actually something that caught my eye was like, oh, she looks a little Kate Bushy, like Mm -hmm. her hair. And then, of course, the music (laughs) is deeply so. But what's odd is I'm almost hearing like a... I don't have great pitch as a musician. However, this seems almost inverted Nico. Like Nico was just like always exactly flat and that was her thing. And this seemed to be, if I'm correct, maybe always exactly sharp or something. Like her voice and the piano are not...
2: Yeah, I mean I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she sings Okay, like so that's that's the thing of her? Yeah. Is, no, I mean my initial but, like I at first I couldn't tell whether it was actually an acoustic piano. I was thinking no. there's not there's <sighs> enough reverb on it. So maybe that was a MIDI performance and she yeah. like recorded it a half step up, nailed yeah. the vocal take, and then knocked the piano a half step down. Yeah. But it, it act, no, no, actually, that's just the way she hears that melody in her head. That's it's amazing. just something specific to her.
1: I love that, especially like right, especially recently. I've been really into these YouTube channels that take popular songs and just go yeah. a half like take the yeah. vocals a half yeah. pitch sharp or yeah. or something like that and it's yeah. as it's as really uh, troubling and fun oh, and like, like so hearing hungry pretty. like the wolf when the vocals are just just wrong just not yeah. off too much it's unsettling yeah yeah
2: it um, would be physically impossible i would imagine that it would be impossible for simon laban to physically perform yeah that new melody like yeah. you need technology in order to uh straightjacket the melody to a new shape like that. And yet sometimes I actually prefer the sound of it. I grew up listening to The Residence where like, Mm. you know, they would do these covers of 60s, 70s classic rock songs and just play half of the notes wrong, but always sort of intentionally so until everything was just made slightly alien and beautiful.
1: Well, what I I find listening to, let's say, Take On Me with the vocals, uh, a semitone off, is that... It's almost so close that your brain fixes it. Yeah. You know, like it almost, it's almost fine because it's such familiar territory that your brain, my brain, my ears, just sort of makes it fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I don't know this. it's not fine.
2: It's not (laughs) fine.
1: (laughs) But I don't, I don't know uh, Marissa Marshall. What do you know about her?
2: Well... In the mid-2000s, several mainstream publications ran an experiment where you could actually post comments to their professional record reviews. And um, it was an experiment, brief experiment. And uh, over time, an internet legend sort of developed where dozens and dozens of commenters would show up lambasting all of the music being reviewed and saying, this music is nowhere near as good as that of Marissa Marchant. Followed by links to the music. And uh, Marissa didn't really know about IP addresses or any of that, that any of these things could be traced back to her until finally the internet woke up to the legend of this hilarious self promotional troll personality. And I don't think (laughs) it would have taken if the music that she was posting to her own website wasn't truly special. Like, there are many songs like Emu on her website that show the same totally uh, individual sense of melody. So it is kind of like this, you know, she she claims to hate Kate Bush and Tori Amos. Uh, she prefers things like Van de Generator and Gentle Giant and Renaissance, huh. and she listens to... She has great taste in music, but I I... You have to admit that there's a certain sort of singer-songwriter mold that, like, she printed on Young... But her sense of melody is unique. And it's the kind of thing that could only exist on the internet. So she can't help herself when she finds a music group that's like discussing her work or uh, the work of people that she has a strong opinion of. She shows up and begins posting dozens of times an hour, like engaging, engaging, engaging. She's a little off. She's... um, She's still she's still doing this? She has calmed down a little bit since the mid-2000s, but it goes part and parcel with the music. So uh. when I actually try to understand what the internet is doing to distribution, modes of production and distribution, what it does to the artist, like all of these crazy promises that you can write a song, finish it entirely yourself, get it online, and then actually interact and build your brand and engage... I think of Marissa as kind of in some ways the definitive true artist of the internet because um, she's got it, she's special, she's unique, she actually delivers the goods. I actually love her music, although her music does drive a lot of people completely crazy. Like yeah. it's not normal music, but it's special. It's actually what. You know, if you're saying the Internet actually has the potential to release things that major labels normally wouldn't touch or, you know, deliver any kind of difference or distinctive um, alternative, like, that's Marissa. And at the same time, traditional distribution models often would deliver the goods without you ever actually having to listen or live with the artist. Yeah. Uh, and yet because of the Internet... All of Marissa's personality quirks are just as much in your face. Like, you actually have to live with Marissa. She's actually, she can be really abusive. She can be really, she can be really intense. Uh, and there she is endlessly online telling you to listen to her music when she does turn up. I've actually struck up an email correspondence with her, and I actually consider her a friend at this point, even though she gets pretty angry sometimes and upset. Like Hi, hey Marissa. I just, I just keep trying. Oh, she'll find this, and she'll if you. Are there comments on your?
1: No, absolutely not. Well, I, and and uh, I, however, I would be happy to publish anything she writes to me personally. She might demand that she's, this be she's taken down. Actually, oh no, no, Marissa, please don't do that. This is amazing. I'm super into this, and yeah, please let this be the artifact that promotes your music. And yeah, I mean, it, it's not that I don't allow comments for the very reason you're describing, but it kind of is. Um, you know, it's it's like. It's my podcast. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, right. I I love hearing from people, but the um, the storm beneath the the YouTube videos is something I I
2: do not abide. Oh no, it's it's uh, it's a mess.
1: It's but a mess. so has her self promotion sort of. I don't want to say worked because at this point that something working on the internet doesn't even mean anything. But like, has she been reviewed by Pitchfork? Has have have people on uh, larger platforms uh, taken an interest in what she's done? There was an article in SF Weekly about ten years
2: ago. How oh, far out? On the whole, many people have tried, but then they run into her personality. Like you know, eventually they decide that they. It's uh, difficult to get her a concert or something like that. Like you really have to deal with the full person. Sure. But where's where she I, from? Oh, uh, she's living around um, Staten Island right okay. now, actually. And she'll um, there's a stream of new work and new videos and um, diet tips and uh, 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 sort of bizarre self-confessional rants available on YouTube. It sounds like a very complete lifestyle page. She's the modern artist. Like yeah, yeah. I, I can't. Uh, Uh, it's, it's, there's something that we all have to learn from, from, um, if I'm trying to understand what the internet is, uh, I think she ties into
1: it in some way. So obviously people can, uh, search her out online, but just while we're talking about it, does she explain her music? Does she, in, in all this, uh, verbal activity in all this exchange that she's participating in, does she sort of like lay it out for us? This thing that, you know, I'm still very confused by, and I'm excited to hear more of what she does. But I think the way the way to describe it, one of the reasons she caught
2: was when she was posting to these other record reviews with her critique of everything wrong with modern music, how it's bland, over commodified, like, you know, uh, Nora Jones is, you know, completely bland music as much as she was obviously doing it just to promote herself, like there was something in her critique of modern music modes of distribution and consumption that like everyone could respond to. Everyone's like, yes, yeah, actually you're right. You're totally, even, even at her most sort of unedited or, um, even when you're sitting there going, wow, she should really stop posting. There's, there's part of me that is completely engaged. In what she's saying. Yeah, exactly. Like I, uh, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and I, I, I think her accomplishment with her sense of melody, like I actually her melodies totally get caught in my way in the way that uh, never happens with any other songwriter. What else shall we play? Um, probably any track, or the first track off the Roland Kane CD that I
1: brought. Great. It was you who turned me on to his Tetra. tetra, tetra. That's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I got to be honest, you've turned me on to like a lot of the music that I mostly listen to lately. (laughs) And that's included. And actually, I'll just say like right next to the pile of CDs you brought to listen to, you also brought um, Elsa... Marie Padé, is that how you pronounce her name?
2: Maybe I think it's Pod. I'm not sure.
1: Pod, yeah, it should, Which is just, I, I. Oh yeah. I gotta say, w- w- uh, uh, when I heard you play that on the radio, I, it w- it really kind of took the wind out of my sails a bit. Like where mm-hmm. where I started to realize, like, oh, this thing that I'm r- trying really hard to do with my music, she was doing yeah. a long time 1962,
2: ago, 62, way better than I'm doing. So. Yeah. <laughs> No, most discussions of ambient music really, you know, shouldn't take place without discussing her stuff in the fifties. And it's. um, but, uh, you know, all, all sympathy for why that conversation hasn't happened. Her records didn't really start coming out until the early two thousands. And at first only on a very obscure Danish label in pressings of a thousand. And, and like that important finally put out that two CD set a couple years ago, that's, I think I, it couldn't be a more than a couple thousand copies. Like, it's still, her name is still only in the hands of the specialists for the depth of what she managed to open up. For, you know, she changed the depth, she widened the parameters of what we all now take for granted. But it, it uh, that accomplishment has yet to make its way back to her actual name.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm just, yeah my confrontation with her <laughs> and i feel like it was a it wasn't just like listening it was a confrontation was for me a bit of like ah fuck it <laughs> <laughs> i think it, i usually get
2: validated like i uh, i i don't know i don't know i go out of my way not to have my own music um not to promote my own music like i really like the idea of go ahead this is your moment finding it Well, no, Mm. I don't want it to be my moment. What I'm saying is I like (laughs) hiding behind collaborations and I like, Mm. uh, you know, obscurely, I like posting my records online and uh, not mentioning to anybody that they're there. I like just the idea that um, the people who, the entirety of the audience for the work are the people who cared enough to find it. And it's pretty validating when you actually make your way back to something that was made in the late 50s that was sort of the same aesthetic, like this music had to exist. Uh, so many of the names in electronic music that were that we knew first were the people who were also loudmouths, who had no problem writing a 30-page manifesto, um, are, explaining why— <laughs> Well, you know, those in school, like, you know, men were the ones uh, socialized to be more self-confident and to write those 30-page manifestos. But even when women like uh, Daphne Oram and Pauline Oliveros wrote those manifestos themselves, sometimes it would take a while. Although I think that it is the fact that Oliveros was a prolific writer. That's the reason why she became, why for years she was known as the female electronic composer was because she actually was bold enough to like put her name down and publish. God knows the majority of people don't actually listen to uh, new music for fun when it comes out. It takes 50 years for the audience to show up. But if you can actually manage to get your ideas encapsulated in words and write down a manifesto as to why your music needs to exist, it makes the journalist's job easier to write about this music that uh, probably they don't even like to listen to. Right. But um, the audience does show up eventually. Even if it stays a small audience, this music is... Incredibly rich. You shouldn't let the fact that this music existed in 1956 discourage you. (laughs) Like it's all part of the genius. It's all like there's the zeitgeist is uh, it's it's uh, it's a tribal continuity that actually is very validating and keeps us all moving forward. The fact that this stuff
1: actually does have to exist. Definitely. Well, let's talk about the piece that we actually did listen to, which is not a million miles away from from. How yeah. Nice music.
2: yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Roland Kane. Well, it's worth mentioning that I didn't even really personally select the piece that I just played. I just dragged one of I picked one of his thirty four CDs at random off of my wall. You have thirty four of his? I didn't even know he
1: had that many. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. There were um, in the seventies he put out a series of three, four, and six record sets that were basically just mammoth, immersive. I mean, so there's some of the first immersive long-form ambient records that ever existed. They were all self-released, but um, the real point of his music was that it was long-form. This The uh, liner notes mention, for appropriate listening, crossfade the last 30 seconds and the first 30 seconds of each record together so that it goes unbroken. Like, you know, don't turn these records over, mix them so that the yeah. music never stops. The other important thing is that the liner notes are filled with Um, the philosophy of cybernetic music, um, self-playing automated intelligences that the composer interacts with. So many of these pieces are pretty much improvised in real time with the aid of an absolutely incredibly complex modular synthesizer. There are some pictures of his modular synthesizer and you can barely see the surface of it for the patch cables that are drap draped over it. Like you can, you can barely even tell you can't see the modules. You can't see a single knob. It's only patch cables <laughs> and maybe a couple of faders. So there's a lot going on. And of course there are a lot of previous decisions. And I think, um, Recordings that he's mixing with in real time but you really get a sense of real time flow and spontaneous creation with his music like something that really required three hours of uh, the pieces are three hours long but they weren't um, they flow they flow in a way that almost no other electronic music from that time does some of the rare exceptions are Pauline Oliveros' stuff That you know she would also just sort of do these 30 minute takes where she would like it takes me at least 30 minutes to get into this and that's you get the sense that her pieces would have gone on longer if she'd had more tape. Um, but, uh, yeah, the Roland Kane records are designed to go on and on and on. So, uh, and it's it's not about repeat plays. I actually, music feels live again in his hands. It feels like I'm not listening to a recording. Part of it is that he put out so much that there's no need to listen to the six LP box set a second time. You move on to the next six LP box set or you move on to, um, and, uh, the records that he put out, he also woke up his CD label and put out uh, 29 new CDs of music in the late nineties. And that was a fraction of what he recorded. There's a PDF available at his website listing, you know, like 29 hour, like 35 hour long pieces of music from May of 2006, you know, he, when he retired in the late nineties or whenever he began recording every single night. And I feel like every single night's improvisation ended up being a chapter in another long form work. Mm. Um, his works got longer and longer and longer towards the end of his life. So there are, uh, there was also, I think, oh, God. Um, I forget the radio station in Europe, but they broadcasted a 14-hour-long piece of his called A Little Milky Way of Sound towards the end of his life, like just all 14 hours in one go. So you can find the MP3s of that if you're really
1: looking. How, um, how do you feel his, the quality of his work in all those releases are? I think he was consistent. Nice. Yeah. I think um,
2: the idea was strong enough. I mean, there are times where my listening is a little bit more engaged, or you just get this as, oh, wow, he's really flooring it now. Wow, he just turned a corner. Oh, right, you know, right, Every once in a while, you go, wow, this is, yeah, go for it, Roland. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of companion music. And... Um, His ideas about cybernetic thinking that were obviously inspired, Norbert Wiener is is a big part of, uh, this goes back to the question of what electronic music is really good at doing. If you build a system that is complex enough to, and random enough to creatively surprise you as you interact with it, then you are dealing with aspects of music that you, um, you're collaborating with the machine, you're interacting with the machine, you're
1: one with the machine, you're doing things that only electronic music can do. I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that on, uh, like, let's say at this point in the history of electronic music, that I feel like it's, it's not this simple, but split in two different directions. One direction is a total embrace of that, that the uh, modular synthesis world is such an embrace of the, that ethic. Yeah, uh, that process, and the other is uh, with let's say Ableton Live. Oh, so much Ableton Live-based yes. music that is all yes. gridded and predetermined and based on rigid yes. sample structures. That when we were talking actually earlier about uh, Marissa Marchand could create a piece of music and upload it and be promoting it within minutes. Yeah. That with this other type of electronic music, you can write it. And post it online and be commenting on it in less time than the song actually is, like you can render a five minute song without even listening to it, mm-hmm. but know exactly what it's going to sound like because it is so pre it's it's not yeah. there's no indeterminacy it's so very predetermined that you can write and produce music and not even listen to it and know what it's going to sound like, and probably post it to Soundcloud with absolute confidence that it will be exactly. What you had hoped it to be. Yeah. And. W-
2: I Able- mean, on one hand,
1: that's awesome. On the other oh, hand, it's sort oh, of God. joyless.
2: And Ableton Live, so much to answer for. <laughs> so much to answer for. It's
1: it's uh, as as it's recording us speaking I, on my laptop at this very moment.
2: I, it's gotten a lot. I, I hear that since Live Seven, like it's it's loosened up. You no longer have to have your music sound like everybody else's music. Like they've they've opened it up and made some decisions that no longer force everyone down the same the same narrow grid. But uh, that's one of the main questions we have to have uh, about this this technology moving forward. Are we using it to automate decisions and relationships that we used to have to have with people? I mean, the dream is: Do we uh, we if if the if Ableton Live exists to um, automate certain decisions that we used to have to collaborate with human band members to do? then we're thinking of the software in terms of slave labor, basically. You have the vision as of the... You, are, as the composer, have the vision of the music in your head that you used to have to hire a band for or, you know, collaborate with a band for it so that the bass line and the, the drum line could, like, continue to play out in perpetuity. And now we're just using this machine to do all of those elements, but it only reveals how the paucity of your musical vin- vision, if it's really that, you know, repetitive and... Um, you're, if you treat the machine basically like a substitute for slave labor, then it's audible in the music. Like you are turning yourself into a slave, and everybody who listens to it into you know kind of a slave. But well, I think I think
1: parallel to what you were saying about the way that this uh, exists about computers and technology in general is that like let's say social media, the dream is that it brings us all together. The fact is that it's done actually the exact opposite. Yeah. Similarly with electronic music. anything is now possible and all music sounds the same. And I not, and when I say that now, I'm not referring to what I was talking about earlier. Like there's nothing new, but rather the predominance of electronic music is a very, uh, militarized sample, accurate sample, similar techno based on sample packs and, uh, ease of reproducibility. Yep. Yep.
2: You don't, Ever want the tools to get so good that you're finally able to do everything that you thought of doing? The process of making music is, oh, that's is so good. It's it's about being able to keep making mistakes and to stay confused, so that you have to fight your way out of a situation. We've all noticed that many of our favorite artists actually get less interesting over time because as they get more wealthy and get to work with their favorite, other favorite artists, like their music starts sounding exactly like they always wanted it to. And yet it was pretty much the early records when they were fighting to make it sound as much like they wanted to do as possible, that the interesting conflicts happened. And yet when they finally actually get to go to Nashville and record a perfect record, it's completely, you know, there there wasn't enough left over to justify the, uh, you know, maybe your core idea wasn't interesting. Maybe it was the fight and the people that you had to argue with and be in a band with that was actually creating the interesting music. And Ableton Live is just, uh, well, it's all very interesting, just as you said, in that it's um, the music that's coming out of some of this software that just replaces people via slave labor is a lot like what's happening to the rest of us on social media. It is the music of the age.
1: That struggle you are describing, it also reminds me, another example of that that seems very palpable to me is that happens with stand-up comedians. (laughs) Where when they're young and tormented and are assholes, their work is usually really interesting. But when they get old and tired and maybe go on mood-stabilizing drugs and maybe get married and have kids and have to fucking chill out their work tends to get really boring because they're not fighting off their demons on stage, which means we're, you know, we're all attending the monkey show and that's very predatory as an audience member, but at the same time it makes for great art. (laughs) So how do you deal with this in your own work? How do you fight off a a certain sort of uh, complacency, a potential for complacency within your own work?
2: I would love my own music to make people happy instead of just um, commiserate with them. <laughs> instead of instead of it being a document of a torment, I would love it if it actually just uh, yeah. I don't know. I also don't like talking about my own
1: music. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Let's> <laughs> not, not
2: like there was a rude. No, it, I I love talking about other people's music because it's all part of the same work. <laughs> Well, to bring it back to Roland Kane, um, (laughs) To
1: quickly stop talking about yourself.
2: Ableton Link, Ableton Live is one way of approaching music where you're using the software to realize the ideas that you consciously know that you have. But computers are also astonishingly good at random number generation and randomizing processes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been fascinating to see the modular uh, synth revolution kind of uh, bring these practices back into into the mainstream like um, synthesizers can be good as collaborators as instead of blind slaves bringing your idea across the finish line you don't have to know what the music you're making sounds like until the moment you're hearing it so uh, I've always been totally inspired by Roland Kane and David Tudor and the League of automatic music composers and all the people who or uh, approach the machines as possible collaborators or investigating what the instrument means when the instrument can help you make the decisions. And that's also something that electronic music can be intrinsically good at and uh, a way for it to be sort of a liberating way forward instead of a horrifying, redundant, retromania, recursive loop.
1: That was great. Let's leave it there. Uh, yeah,
2: let's, let's, let's Thank all
1: you time. so much. Sure. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Welcome, everybody, to the footnotes. I encourage you to check out Wobbly's work. I'll provide a link at whywelisten.org. And I also really welcome your comments and input. Please share them via that same address. I encourage you, if we've introduced you to music that you want to hear more of, please buy it in the highest quality possible, as directly from the artists as possible. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a moment to review Why We Listen. I'm Mark Kate. This is why we listen. Thanks for listening.